Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome, welcome to episode number 68 of Real Blend, a podcast that has two entertainment all-stars on its roster. Hey! That's me! That's me! me. Uh, (laughs) My name is Sean O'Connell, the managing director here at Cinema Blend, and one-third of the hosting triumvirate known as the Real Blend Podcast. Let me get right to my co-host because we have so much show to get to, including a very special guest star. But first, foremost, Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago. How are you, sir? You know, I'm doing well. I'm doing all the more better because pretty soon you and me and Kevin are going to be sharing a beer. In yes, the we will. Uh, we're go- Maybe with Elton John or Sansa. We are going to London uh, for the Dark Phoenix Junket, for the Rocket Man Junket. And uh, are you, you guys are doing Late Night? You guys are both doing Late Night? Yeah, we're doing Late Night very as nice, well. With Mindy yeah. Kaling and Emma Thompson, who was very funny on SNL. I, I don't know why. Uh, yeah, she was great. I don't know why she was doing, why she was hosting, but then she ended up being really, really funny. Anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. Oh, she's hosting for Late Night. Well, yeah, I would imagine. Yeah. But then she was like, she was really funny. Um, my uh, th- second co-host, of course, the man in the third chair. Uh, Kevin McCarthy of Fox 5. Hi, Kevin. How are you? Uh, good afternoon, Sean and uh, Mr. Hamilton. Good seeing you again from yesterday. And uh, I, I got a, I got a new mug for the show, by the way. I don't know if you guys can see That's this. A great, I noticed that. That's a great uh, mug. I had to. Uh, it, it, this is actually the first time I'm drinking out of it. For audiences who can't see us, obviously, I'm, I'm drinking out of an official Thanos mug. But it actually has... Infinity stones that are really stones on it. I don't know how long it's going to last, but we'll see. Is that plastic or ceramic? No, 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 it's 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 like glass. So I guess ceramic. I guess yeah. I mean, and and the the, the things are real. Like they're I don't know how to explain it, but it's not like they're real infinity it's stones. It's the real infinity stones, exactly. If you yeah. uh, had drank that, if you brought that down by me, I would serve you Riala sweet tea. Oh, uh, no. wait, hold on. Does that, does that work? Jake? It's like a reality know. stone, reality. Oh, none of them work. None of them ever no, 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 work. No, no, no. They don't. They don't work. <laughs> that was amazing. Uh, I, I like it when they don't work. I'm trying off the bat. Uh, our guest star uh, this week, we will tease you guys with the fact that we are going to be speaking with uh, Chad Stahelski, the director of Stahelski, Stahelski, the director of John Wick, Chapter Three, Parabellum. All three of us were able to see it this week. Uh, continuing the John Wick saga. Um, We will not be doing spoiler conversation with him because it's going to be in this week's episode. And so we're going to just set up a lot of his work that he did behind the scenes. Uh, We'll try to get in some Matrix questions and we will have our interview with him later on in the show. Uh, We have a winner for the Endgame death pool. I don't know if you guys remember, but we brought this up a couple episodes. Is it me? Is it me? Jake, I have some bad news for you. You didn't win uh, the Endgame death pool. So you don't even get a mug... Like Kevin has. Kevin got a cool mug out of it. Uh, oh, I, 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 bought, the, I purchased my the, mug. You purchased your mug. You didn't win anything. Yeah, yes, this is the, the gauntlet. Doug Adams uh, from Georgia oh, so cool. scored 121 points out of a possible 129, which was unbelievable. Wow. So he mainly guessed like who was going to die, who was going to survive. Uh, and he is getting a, a life-sized Infinity Gauntlet to wear. And Doug, we hope that you use your Infinity Gauntlet for good and not evil. Yes, Kevin. For somebody who, and then forgive me for not, and this sounds weird because I love the movie Deadpool. Uh, I'm not really fully understanding what a Deadpool is in regards to this element. So what, when you mean he got 121 points, is that, like, does that mean, how, did he guess 121 people were going to live or die? I'm confused. Well, there were other questions in the pool. Um, it wasn't, okay. it was kind of like, um, 
who was the first Avenger we would see on screen. And you could oh, pick like five okay. people. Um, Got it. Okay. Who I forget what some of the other questions were. Like who was going to get sacrificed for the Soul Stone? You had to guess like specific things like this. Oh, wow. That's and really impressive. And each of the questions like, were pretty weighted. But so. how did they even know that who was in a, that there was going to be a scene where someone would get sacrificed for a soul stone. Yeah, that wasn't a question, but it was questions like that. I like see I'm what saying. you're saying. Yeah, okay. specific things. Just, who is going to kill, like, which character, if 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 a character kills Thanos, who will be the one to kill Thanos? Got it. And, all, and, and now when that happens, since we are in spoiler territory, since two characters technically kill Thanos, is, is if you guessed one of those characters, do you, do you get it Ooh. right? Yes. We had that discussion afterwards where we said, does Thor beheading Thanos count? And we said, yes, yes. that counts. Yeah, it does. It definitely. Yeah, counts. absolutely. It does. Yeah, for sure. Jake, Jake and I got asked to be in a Game of Thrones one and we said no, because like then it kind of affects the way you watch the show, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. But I think so. Yeah. Oh, one episode left. We're going to get the Game of Thrones talk in this episode also. Uh, but first, we got to get through reviews because we have two to read this week. Uh, if you guys write us a review and send it to realblend at cinemablend.com, obviously we will read it on the show. If you go to our Apple iTunes page, uh, you can give us a star rating and leave us a review. We have 97 star ratings. I really, really... The OCD person in me wants to get us over 100, so please do us a favor, make that happen. So you want to get over 100 by next year? Yeah, I did. I wanted, of, I wanted that by January. The end of 2019. I did say, I said you didn't, January. You didn't say which January you wanted to get there by. <sighs> well, you know, it's May. It's like the middle of May, and we still haven't gotten to 100. That was a lofty Hey, we're goal. making it dramatic. We're in sweeps right now. For people that know television, we're in sweeps. So we're saving the dramatic finale for sweeps. Yeah. Well, uh, these are the two reviews that we have um, that were sent to us this week. Uh, first one is by F. Barstool, who calls us the Three Amigos. And said, each episode is like listening in on three film nerds' private conversations made public. Sean, Jake, and the killer of puns bring passion ah. and levity into their deep insight of cinema. They embrace and knight their fans. K-N-I-G-H-T. Like we... Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess with the, yeah. with the sword, right? Making sure. us feel part of the cool crowd. A must listen for movie lovers. Uh, this is Chris Folk who is in Charlotte by way of DC. Uh, Chris Folk actually interacts with us on Twitter a bunch. And so, uh, yeah, that yeah. Not really very nice po- guy. Very, yes. Very positive influence on social media, which is a rare thing these days. Killer, killer puns. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah. And this one comes from, that's not a good thing. I am G 83 who says, thanks for the great podcast. Hey guys, found your podcast a couple of months ago and thoroughly enjoy listening to you three talk about movies, discussions about film pertaining to the other side of the camera and how it affects the films are especially interesting. Mainly love talks surrounding the scores of films. Yeah, how many other podcasts actually delve into the scores and then have people like Danny Elfman on as a Elfman? That's me sidetracking. Um, I especially enjoy the blend games and frequently watch movies I haven't seen in a while because of them. Keep up the great work and can't wait for more to come. Side note. Just listened to the Josta podcast and loved hearing oh. your own Kevin McCarthy talk heavy music and movies. Thanks again, Dunkirk. Wait, is Kevin 
podcast cheating on us? No, 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 no. That, uh, and I'll keep this short. So growing up, uh, one of my favorite bands of all time was a band called Hatebreed. And the lead singer of that band, Jamie Josta, has like a, uh, a podcast every week where he interviews lead singers of metal bands. And he's on like episode like 400 or something like that, whatever. So long story short, we found each other through social media and he started following me because he liked my movie interviews. And he was in town for a concert up the street from my house. And he was like, hey, any chance you could pop on over before our show and come on the show and just talk about movies? Because he wanted, he kind of wanted like kind of what we have here where like, like this insight of what it's like to do interviews, who we talk to. It was like a one-time thing, but it was for real, surreal. And I'll tell you why. When I was a kid, I saw them live when I was like 13 or 14. And he ended up selling me one of their albums out of the back of his car and the, he then went on to become an MTV host he's like one of their, their songs were featured in the movie Triple X with Vin Diesel um, they're pretty hardcore I mean it's, a, it's definitely a heavy metal band but uh, you had that album cool. still you brought that album with oh. you Dude, those, so th- this is how surreal our lives are, and we all know this because we all kind of go full circle with a lot of people we get to talk to and meet over the years. Um, I'm a big metalhead. I've always have been. I just saw Killswitch Engage last night, and you know, but, but yeah, I had the CD with me when I went to see him, um, and it was a really surreal thing because I, I was kind of like, am I really in this room with Jamie, who I've been following for since I was 14 years old, and he's having me talk about, on his show as a guest? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. It was cool. I also yeah. want to give a shout out beyond the reviews to um, Cinema Hooked, who follows us on social media, uh, made yes. us amazing oh, absolutely. cutting boards. And uh, we'll, we'll, you can trace back on our social media page these cutting boards. And it's not like the gift. Like the gift is fantastic. Like that's so really nice. Watching, he made a video about how he made the boards. And it was so, it was mesmerizing to see how these cutting boards are made. Like, they're sliced in these individual, uh, like, the choice of wood in each of the different things and the way they're glued together. And it was really, it was a fascinating thing to watch. I have no skill at all in terms of woodworking or any real craft skill like that. And just the, the process of putting these cutting boards together. He engraved them with the Real Blend logo. He put quotes for each of us, like, personalized quotes on it. It was really spectacular. So go through our social media page and... Find those. Uh, they're 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 absolutely beautiful. Uh, I mean, it was, yeah, the, the video itself was. I stopped. It stopped my day and just was transfixed by the. It, it, I would have watched that video even if the final product weren't for me. Uh, and it was really it, so seriously. Thank thank you thank you for uh, for doing that. It's true. It's, and anyone that that loves this podcast enough to make three absolutely beautiful cutting boards for us is just is awesome. Isn't it? Didn't Roger Deakins shoot that video? He might have. It looked like That's it. How good it looked. You know what I loved about the cutting boards? Is Gabe didn't get one. That was that was really cool. No, no, he they sent Gabe wrapping paper. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, talking points as we get wrapped up. Um, this the, the big news that happened this week um, is that Disney officially, unofficially confirmed. We were talking about the fact that they gave dates to the upcoming Star Wars movies, but we didn't know if it was going to be Ryan Johnson or it was going to be. Uh, Benioff and Weiss, the two guys who are currently driving the Game of Thrones franchise into the ground. Well, it turns out that Benioff and Weiss are going to be the guys who are getting the next Star Wars film. And so in 2022, is that right? Yes. They will kick off uh, the beginning of their franchise. Which is a good thing. How do you guys feel about the fact that they're going to be the first ones up? And uh, are you willing to defend your boys because of the way they're doing uh, what's happening with season eight? I think what I'm about to say, uh, Jake will agree with. 
Um, I well, well, maybe he'll agree with part of it. Uh, I don't love season eight of Game of Thrones. Uh, I agree that you also. Do, I agree that you don't love it. <laughs> but uh, but I do think that people are rushing to judge. Two direct so a lot of the negativity online now is once that it was announced that that these two directors we, we uh, creators we already knew they were get, getting their own Star Wars trilogy. In fact, when I met uh, uh, um, blanking on her name, Kathleen Kennedy at that at that Iron Throne thing, as she you was do, th- I know she was there to get a photo to send to DB and David. That's why she was there. Um, but I guess the uh, the announcement here now is that they were the next ones to do the trilogy, not Ryan Johnson. Um, I think people online are being ultimately negative, saying this is a bad choice because the season's been disappointing. But they're also forgetting the scope of what these gentlemen did in regards to the entirety of Game of Thrones. So. For me, like you're judging someone on five episodes rather than the first 70 or 67 they did prior to that. I don't know if Jake agrees with that, but, you know, regardless of how you feel about season eight, judging two gentlemen who created one of the greatest shows ever on the last season and saying they shouldn't do a Star Wars movie to me is not fair. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that completely. I, I am starting to choose uh, to, to look at Game of Thrones less as an eight-season show and more as just a, what is it now, going to be 73, 74-chapter story. Yeah. And, and forget the breaking ups of the season and look at it as one story. And as one 73, 74-chapter crafted story, they did an incredible job. Yeah. No one, no one can look at that that story and say that that they don't deserve to do amazing things from here. Anyone that can look at that and then say I don't want them to do a Star Wars is an idiot. Is it, I'm sorry, like you, it's it's it makes no sense that they can craft something like you know some of the things they've done, whether it be Battle of the Bastards or the, you know the right. Which granted, right. I know that a lot of it on pages is is uh, George R. R. Martin, but it's it's a it's the greatest accomplishment in the history of television. It's astonishing work that deserves to be seen on the big screen. And I am very excited to see what and they I'll do with Star Wars. I'll even say it from this perspective, because I was very late to the Game of Thrones uh, bandwagon. Obviously, most people know at this point now that I binged it over the course of the past six weeks. And when these guys got the, their show, when it was or their franchise, when it was told they were going to be brought into the Star Wars universe, I had no opinion whatsoever because I didn't realize what type of storytellers they were. It wasn't exciting to me. But when I was through season three, four, you know, even getting into five, I remember at that point saying, like, I can't wait to see what these guys do in this Star Wars universe. Like, give them a chance to develop if it's an old Republic story, which people like to latch on the fact that it might be, even if it's just completely original characters that we've never met before in a in a different corner of the universe that's never been explored. I think they'll be fantastic. I think they're going to be amazing at that. And I'm while I'm with Kevin, I'm a little bit disappointed in how this season is playing out. I think people feel that they're rushing through it because they wanted to get to Star Wars. They didn't want to do a full season of Game of Thrones because they wanted to start prepping for this. So I'm I'm 100% on board with what they're going to do. I think it's going to be exciting. Why not? They were great in the early seasons of Game of Thrones. Yeah, one thing I will say, if this news broke after season six, there would be a much different tune being sung right now by audiences. I will say this, um, playing devil's advocate, season eight, has been very disappointing, uh, except for last week's episode, which we'll, I know we're going to get into reaction shortly. Um, but I 
the only concern I have based on season eight now is how they would end the trilogy. Uh, and I do not, I mean, you're talking about masterful work that was done over six seasons, partial elements in seven spoils of war is one of my favorite episodes of the whole series. No question. But I will say I'm a little worried. Listen, we are one episode away an hour and 20 minutes away from wrapping up nine or 10 storylines. And I, and I truly don't understand how that is possibly going to work within the pacing of this season. There's a lot to do. And I'm just disappointed as much as I loved episode five, which we'll get into. I'm just disappointed at the pacing of this season and the writing of this season and um, it, it worries me about the last part of the trilogy. That's okay, I, to, to extend your line of thinking, if Ryan Johnson can craft one of the best final episodes of Breaking Bad and then give us a crap Star Wars movie, then these guys can craft what you deem to be disappointing Game of Thrones episodes and give us... The, the two but are unrelated. That's like, no, 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 because but Ryan Johnson directed two episodes of Breaking Bad out of 60, whatever it was. Like, that, were, that, that, that would be more comparable if Vince Gilligan was taking over Star Wars, not Ryan Johnson. Oh, can he do that? Like, but, but I also, like I mean, to do that. But also, like, here's the thing. Like, I, I think it'll be really, I, I don't know. Do you think they're going to, now, here's a question I'll ask on the air today. Will they direct any of them? And or will they bring in Games of Thrones directors? Oh, so bring, I, 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 yeah. bring in Game of Thrones it. directors. Yeah. I looked on IMDb today. DB and David directed three episodes of Game of Thrones. Um, I'm trying to remember. The, 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 you know they're directing the final episode, right? Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. The final episode of Game of Thrones at 8x6 is directed by DB Weiss and David Benioff. And then they did two others. Uh, I can't remember what seasons they were. They weren't like mind-blowing episodes. Uh, but they've, you know, they've always been an important part of it. So I think Sunday is going to be a big tell. I don't know, though, because one episode doesn't really make or break it for me. I, I don't know how. Uh, by the way, and we'll get into that. I don't think Cersei's dead, but we'll get into that. Go, continue. Yeah, really? Before we no. get to uh, the reaction to or to episode five, um, I want to ask you guys, as as two vocal members of the Disappointed in Last Jedi camp, um does that make you less interested in whatever Ryan Johnson does next in the Star Wars universe? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, so so you guys probably know this more than I do. Is, is Ryan Johnson's trilogy... So theoretically speaking, up until this announcement came out, the next trilogy could have been Ryan's. Okay, so what happens to Ryan Johnson's trilogy? Uh, I, I don't know. There are three Star Wars dates announced... It's like 22, 2022, 2024, and 2025. I, I think the general point was they want to take a break after episode nine to let people, as Jake wisely said, have a chance to miss it again, you know, so it's not just crammed down your throat every year. But that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, uh, Benioff and Weiss's one is going to go one, two, three in a row. They could get the 2022 and Ryan Johnson could be the next one and then they could just stagger the chapters of the trilogies. I'm not sure how that's going to play out. I don't think anybody knows for sure. It's so far off. It's like four years yeah. away. So we'll see. We'll see. All right, let's get to our reaction to Game of Thrones. We've been working this into the episode, uh, commenting on the on the season as it plays out. Kevin and I caught up to Jake. Jake's been a huge proponent of Game of Thrones this whole time. Um, this was a massive, massive episode. Um 
because, I mean, like, it had huge character turns, the decimation of King's Landing. You guys watched it together. Uh, what was the reaction as as it was playing out and you were watching all of this? Like, were you guys 100% on board with what was going on? Stunned silence. We watched it with a, with a few people, a few Fox reporters in New York. And uh, it hit the credits and rolled all the way into the preview for next week and even rolled into the quick little behind the scenes thing. Uh, and just silence. No one, no one spoke. I mean, I was in awe of that episode. I thought it was astounding, an astounding episode. So two quick things, which, which I find interesting. I think Jake and I were discussing this when we were in New York um, about spoiler territory and when you jump into them. Game of Thrones is is much different. I think Jake said this than like an Avengers movie because Game of Thrones is like miss, like the Super Bowl, right? Like Jake, you said yeah, like the next it's, it's day. It's like a sporting event. It's something that uh, even like Lena Headey was on Instagram, uh, Instagramming about it being the end for her. So it's almost like, yeah, I find it interesting that we that this is a this is okay to talk about, and but Avengers Endgame would not be, but it, it's different. The movies, yeah, because because also Avengers Endgame, it takes more effort. It's a bigger go. deal to to stop what you're doing and go to the movie theater as opposed to all you have to do to watch Game of Thrones is be home. Yeah, that's all you have to do is not go anywhere. So I had for a rev- one hour. I, I had a revelation today, ironically enough, based on the Star Wars story we just did about something, and I and. Interestingly enough, uh, I think I loved the episode when I first saw it. I still think it's an amazing achievement, um, cinematography-wise, direction-wise, action-wise. Um, here's my thing, and I remember—I don't know if you guys remember—but like the first time we saw *Force Awakens*, it was so mind-blowingly great, in my opinion, because we had been given three horrific Star Wars films, mostly for the most part, prior to that movie. Um, we forgot really kind of what a great Star Wars movie could look like. And I know criticisms-wise, people think that Force Awakens was a remake of A New Hope. I still love Force Awakens. But I also wonder if the love of that film came from the idea that we had missed that feeling of what a Star Wars movie could be for so long that it felt good to get back in that groove again, right? So my point that I'm making... But I, I feel like time, at least for me, time has proven that wrong because we're now a few years past and I still absolutely love that movie. No, no, I still love Force Awakens and you're 100% right. But as I've been examining Game of Thrones in my mind more often, I mean, you guys know I've been very vocal about this season. See, uh, episodes one through four, I was not a fan of. There were things in those episodes Even I two? Liked. Even two? Two was, no, two, like, two was, oh, two was okay. That was the one at Winterfell. It's forgettable though. I mean, I, I enjoyed hanging out with them a little bit at Winterfell, but it just felt like a waste of time, uh, in my opinion. But uh, but here's the thing. I'll say this. When that episode aired, and I was in the room with Jake, we were blown away. And, and I think a lot of my reaction was getting back into that what Game of Thrones really should be. Like, that episode really kind of brought back the feeling of what a lot of Game of Thrones episodes felt like to me. And then I stand back now over a couple of days after thinking about it, and I think about the writing of it. And there's, I have issues with a lot of the writing. But I think I was so mesmerized by the visuals, the cinematography. I still, I still would say I love the episode. But I don't think I loved it as much as I thought I did, if that makes sense. Well, do you know the now one that thing I that I think these episodes lack is a surprise element. Um, the episodes that knocked me off my feet early on uh, were when things happened where I had no expectation of them. And right. I, and I par- partially, we discuss so many things that we think are going to happen in the upcoming yes. episodes it, yes. that when they happen, it's like the mountain versus the hound, right? 
Um, I was like, I was like, is it going to happen? Like it, back in the day, like when when the mountain fought um, the Viper, right? Uh, yeah, that was a, such a shocking episode, and the and the way that it played out was so surprising. But as much as I thought watching the Hound and the Mountain fight, it just felt inevitable, right? So I I, yeah. I haven't had this oh, season. Oh, I see what you're saying. I haven't had like an like Thrones when it gave you like an oh shit what that like that hasn't happened to me yet this season. But part well, of it you might think just be part of it is because you're part of the conversation now. Yeah, this I is think the first so. season where you've been a part of the conversation. I think so. Like if you if you had just watched it all the way through. Would the you know would Clegane Bowl be more of a like oh I wonder if he's going to do it you know I would it be as much of a built up thing because we keep talking about it same thing with had Jamie been the one to kill Cersei would it have really been that shocking that would have been, been shocking. talking about it even though I th- I thought that was coming that would have been shocking and we can get into that shortly I want to read I, my I t- love oh. Cersei's death I love Cersei's right. no, death gonna, no no why? Yes. no why no no yes. no uh, hold on. Yes. no hold on. No, I want to get into that, but no. I want to say one more thing. Why? I want to read my tweet, and I want you to tell me what's missing from this tweet. This is, at, this is after the episode ended. I was so blown away by it. This is what I said. Damn, this is how you direct a Game of Thrones episode. Episode 5, Season 8, joins Hard Home, Battle of the Bastards, The Watchers on the Wall, Spoils of War, and Blackwater as one of the best episodes of the entire series. This is my tweet. Masterful cinematography, editing, score, and direction. Oh, you're you're you left out writing. So I didn't do it on purpose, but I wonder like mentally, why didn't I include that? And like I, I love that episode. Jake was with me in the room. We were dead silent when it ended. But I think there's something there was something I, I still I, Yeah. Here, I don't here's know. my defense of Cersei's death. Tyrants love spectacle tyrants want to go out with a bang tyrants want big massive things the idea that someone like cersei who controlled so ruthlessly who who yeah. probably inevitably knew like we all do that, that she was going to die i'm sure wanted some big epic spectacle thing she was unceremoniously forgotten about and buried in darkness which is the complete antithesis of what a tyrant wants and i absolutely to me being forgotten like that no one no one was thinking about her whenever she was other than jamie who earlier in the series said he wanted to die in the arms of the one he loved uh i mean no one was thinking about cersei lannister the queen when she died which is the ultimate insult to someone in royalty to be forgotten about to be to 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 die with no one thinking about you i thought that was so hauntingly poetic that someone of such a position in power could just be buried in the darkness and forgotten about so instantly. And Gabe says, uh, and was buried by the very structure that her and her family strived so hard for. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which is right. obvious. Uh, he, he points out that's obvious, but it's also that that's there. Yes. It's there. I'm going to agree with Jake um, on the Cersei death. Uh, I, well, there's two, there's two things that I have found really hard to understand criticism wise. Cause I still really like that episode. I really do. Um, Daenerys's turn, which we'll get to, which was not a turn at all. That was coming from a mile away as if you actually watched the show, um, which I don't understand how anybody, Jake and I discussed this when we were in New York. How do you not see that coming? I, I knew she was going to be the mad queen and back in like season two or three. Um, but the, the Cersei thing is interesting to me and I'll tell you why. Everyone expected like a violent, brutal moment, right? The uh, dragon picking her up, eating her, cutting her in half, uh, whatever it would be, blowing fire on her. To me, the way she died is actually even more brutal. 
because the entire episode, entire series, she's always been this strong character who was essentially unkillable, uh, did not show really any emotion in the sense of like she was always a hardened shell. Like right, we know she was emotional, but to have her breaking down, essentially she's instead of like dying a quick, nasty, horrible, brutal death that's over in two seconds, like the you know the mountain cutting her head off or whatever, or hound cutting her head off, or whatever. She actually had to kind of live in this fear for a good twenty. 30 minutes or whatever the time Fear is more powerful than pain. I agree. I think Cersei's death was worse than Ramsay's death. Yeah. Like, Ramsay got pain, Cersei got fear, and fear is worse. See, it's funny, because Ramsay's death, I think, was well-deserved. I mean, I think we all agree with that. Um, But I don't think he he was out quickly. I think he felt those dogs for a little bit. But, But, sir, but going back to Cersei for a second, though, I almost feel like, think about the horror of her mindset for those minutes. So like the like the moment like Jamie's already dead at this point. His wounds are going to kill him somehow. So for to me it's almost worse that she had to actually emotionally go through the death. Not only was she dying, her baby was dying. So if in there my was opinion, a baby, I think there was. I, I believe I in, believe the fact that they didn't tell us differently to me in, implies that there but was. But in my opinion, I think the way they handled her death if she actually is dead is interesting. Now, my question is, we don't see her die. Does Jamie get on top of her, take the rubble fall, and she's still no, alive? No, no. All right, we'll I see. The, no, we, we, never, we never saw Stannis die either, technically. The one he's, other point I he, want to he's bring... He's not floating around out in the woods out the there. The one other point I want to bring up, and this is just a... I think this is just how it played out, but Arya goes all the way to King's Landing, and then the Hound basically says to her, like, turn around and go back. And then, right. and then she turns around and goes back. Which is to fine. be fair, the movie that was just voted the best movie of the decade is literally you go to one point, you turn around and go back. Is that Mad Max? Yeah. <laughs> that is the point of Mad Max. So? That's the whole story. So, so don't don't knock A to so B to B to A <laughs> I did knock A to B, B to A. That was my Oh, point. that's right. You are the weirdo that doesn't like Mad Max. That's my I whole forgot. point. Maybe I just don't like when, when the plot of anything is A to B, B to A. <laughs> it just gets under my skin. Lord of the, remember in Clerks 2 when Randall gives the... Uh, the the dialogue of Star Wars versus Lord of the Rings, and he, like he just he re, he does all three Lord of the Rings and just walks out and then just drops the ring and then walks back. <laughs> <laughs> That's essentially what happens. It's pretty funny, actually. All right, I, well, I love that. We were so we're gonna figure out, I guess, like in London, we're figuring out a way to watch Game of Thrones the finale together. It's gonna have to be at like two a.m. I know. Yes, Monday that's the plan. I know you were super gung ho for this. We, we have to. We have to. Oddly enough, and also we don't have anything to do later. I mean, this is a very inside baseball conversation we don't have anything to do later that day we're gonna be in london interviewing rob stark and sansa stark on the weekend the show ends that's kind of weird yeah that's nuts and uh all right and who else the guy from uh, uh the guy from king Taren- yeah taron edgerton yeah yeah, yeah. taron edgerton who plays elton john all right anyway um we are going to have chad stahelski on the show momentarily so why don't we before we do that Give you our spoiler-free reaction to John Wick Chapter Three, Parabellum. Now, this week in movies, the other two films opening, which none of us have seen, are A Dog's Journey with Dennis Quaid. Dennis Quaid is going to have two movies in theaters at the same time between The Intruder and uh, A Dog's Journey. I find that pretty interesting. I've been doing junket interview uh, footage editing here at Cinema Blend, and I've seen Dennis Quaid 
more times than I expected to in the year 2019. And the other one is uh, the sun is also a star, which I'm not even quite sure what that is. Is that like a YA? Kevin knows what it is. Adaptation? No, I actually don't know what it is. No, no. I, <laughs> oh, no. I thought I thought uh, that's a different movie than what your wife saw. Uh, no, this one apparently is about uh, like a young love. And this, I guess this relationship has one day to fall in love with each other. I don't know much about it. Um, I'm assuming it's based on a book. Someone's Forgive sick. For... Someone must be sick. Right? I don't know if someone's, someone's sick. sick. I'm someone not sure. But yeah, that, I mean, the title definitely does make you think of Fault in Our Stars for sure. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's what I'm thinking of. Yeah. That's yeah. probably what it is. All right. So instead, all three of us went out of our way to see John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. In fact, you guys did the junket for it. Uh, I ranked them... One three two. I think you guys probably disagree with that. Is that the case? I do two one three. Two one three. Oh, three I'm, John, I'm two one three as well. Okay. Uh, yeah. Well, what, what were your thoughts on Parabellum in general, Jake? Let's start with you. I I really liked it. Uh, the, the action is just humble. It's beautiful. The action sequences. Chad knows what he's doing. To have these really these, these gorgeous action action sequences that aren't shaky cam, that aren't chop up edited, where you can actually see what is happening. The the fight choreography is gorgeous it's absolutely gorgeous i think my biggest knock is that one of the things i loved most about the series is the mystery behind the mythology the the uh you know the this organization that he works for you know it was very much hinted at that it had rules it had a currency it had a doctor it had this and in the first two movies it's very hinted at but you're left with more questions than answers and three just leans into the mythology and i kind of felt like a little bit of the mystery was taken away from it, like it's it's still I I very much love Chapter Three. In fact, I love all three of the films. But I liked it when I liked the mythology a lot more when I didn't know as much about it. Whenever you know you, whenever we learned more, I kind of was sort of checked out a little bit. I like the fact that every time they introduce new characters, obviously we meet Holly Berry in this one. Um, there are other assassins with this one at the end of Chapter Two. Uh, John Wick has essentially been excommunicado, which means that. Uh, the rules no longer apply to him. He's not protected by the society anymore and everybody can go after him. There's a $14 million bounty on his head. None of this is spoiler. This is all kind of set up at the end of chapter two. And as we meet a lot of new characters, they all bring new wrinkles um, to what's going on in the world. And just when you think that you've learned, as you say, that you've learned almost every aspect of, of this universe, they introduce a whole new, (laughs) new segment or or new, you know, area to explore they're really interesting people. Um, where I get to a point with these movies, though, is just it's really hard for them to keep outdoing themselves. Like there are some action sequences in this movie that are jaw droppingly cool. The way that they're choreographed and staged and just the ideas behind them um, that when you when you know that like there's another hour left to go in the movie and you're like, oh, my God, they're going to try to top themselves in this own movie. Like, I don't I don't yeah. this is absolutely one of the questions that I want to get into with Chad of just like having to come up with something that keeps topping everything that you're doing in this franchise. But Keanu blows me away. Is he 54 or something like that? How old is he? He, has, he hasn't aged in 20 years, so, I, so I have no idea. He's like, he must have like a Dorian Gray painting of himself in the attic somewhere. And he also just in his interviews, I've watched most of the interview footage from him. He just strikes me as being one of the coolest guys who just matches his persona. How is he in, in junkets with you guys? Yeah, actually, I got a fun story. So uh, whenever I was done with my interview, I asked him for a picture. And instantly, everyone in the room pounced on me, like almost viciously to a degree. Like, no, 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 we don't have time. Come on, you got to go. We don't have time for this. Come on, we got to go. And he paused there. He goes, no, like he's a, he's a fan. He asked for a picture. Like, come on, let's let, like, let, him, let him take a picture. 
So we took a picture together, and as I was walking out, I heard him say, like, hey, like, if someone asks for a picture, like, it's not a big deal. Like, just just let them take a picture. And I was just like, you know what? That, 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 I thought that was really, like, I'll always remember that story. That's awesome. Kevin, where are you on it? Yeah, I mean, so I'm a huge John Wick fan of the franchise. Um, and I, I would go as far as to say that I love all three of these movies. Uh, four is my, I'm sorry, three is my least favorite, though. Uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with, it's a bit overkill, no pun intended. I mean, there's, it's just nonstop. And listen, I understand that's what John Wick is. But like in John Wick 1, I'm sure Jake agrees, there was, it felt like there was a reason for it all. Um, and in 2, I think 2 is action-wise the best one. I think 1 might have the best story. Uh, 3, I just felt like while I was watching 3, they were making up rules as they went along. Um, and, and like, it, it just, there was something about, there was no stakes in my opinion in regards to like, they were like, oh, okay, this is going to happen next. I, I don't know. There was just something, I can't really dive into it in too much detail without spoiling anything, which we'll get into later. Um, but a lot of the things I didn't love about the third one, um, require me to dive into more spoiler territory, which I won't. Um, that being said... Chad Stilhesky is one of my favorite directors working today, him and David Leach. Uh, Leach crushed it with Atomic Blonde, crushed it with Deadpool 2, can't wait for Hobbs and Shaw. Chad and him directed John Wick 1 together, and then Chad did 2 and 3. Uh, but Chad is, you know, Neo's stunt double from The Matrix. So one of the cool things I talked to Keanu Reeves about, I'd heard Chad tell this story before. I hadn't heard Keanu tell it. Um, I always wondered, like, when they were on the set shooting The Matrix when Chad would step in. Um, so like, for example, Neo had to do a lot of crazy stunts on wires and action scenes. And there's a famous story. Maybe we can get Chad to retell it. It's actually kind of crazy. He blew out his knee while shooting the subway sequence in the first matrix. So like, you know, Keanu does all those scenes and then they bring in Chad to hit that ceiling and then fall back down while he's fighting Hugo weaving. And, like, I find that interesting to think about when Chad, Chad would just be on standby and he would just step in when it was too dangerous. And that's the scene that he blew his knee out in. And I think there's just a lot of interesting. The reason why these movies look so good and the action is so clean is they don't cut. They just like do like a one or two minute long continuous shot of action. What, what blows my mind, and this is not a spoiler, there's, there are sequences where a guy's laying on the ground as John Wick is pulling knives out of other people and throwing them into the person laying on the ground all in one shot, meaning that there's some crazy trickery happening there if someone is taking a knife either digitally and or uh, it, it's wild how they're doing it. Uh, um, and there's a shot. Wait, there's a shot with an eyeball that I don't know how they did it. Ooh, yeah. Oh, oh. So one thing will and he and he's taught he's he's discussed this before. And I, I really want to have him discuss it with us on our show. Um, about how he achieved the dog crotch biting shots. Um, like there is some wild su su stuff in this movie about how they actually pulled this off because they, do you know Halle Berry actually trained her own dogs? So that they, they didn't have a trainer do her, train her dogs. She did that. So like everyone, she's the one commanding them for real on the set to do those scenes. So action wise, the film is insane. You can watch any B-roll footage and see that they were really doing this stuff, especially Keanu Reeves, especially uh, her as well. Uh, I also kind of wanted to know, I think Jake, we discussed our questions already, um, taking one of, one of Jake's questions a little bit further. Uh, would Chad step in for a stunt 
in this movie if he had to. But I, I don't I highly doubt it, right? I'm assuming he couldn't legally. I don't I don't know how that works. At this point he's earned the, the, the ability right. to Someone sit in the chair. Someone else steps in. <laughs> yeah, let but the like, young guy you know, come but, in and do it. But like if let, let, if if uh, if Keanu's stunt double is like sick that day, can Chad sub? <laughs> I don't know, because he's because he played Neo's stunt double. I don't know. I'd be interested to know that. Well, why don't we get to the conversation where we actually ask all of our John Wick questions to Chad Stahelski? So here is our interview with the director of John Wick 3 Parabellum. We are so thrilled to have Chad Stahelski here to talk about John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. Chad, thank you for joining us here on the Real Blend Podcast. Of course. Thank you very much. Oh my gosh, we're so excited to get into the ins and outs of how you guys put this latest chapter together. Um, I want to lead off just with a question, though. When you're getting into uh, chapter three of this story, and especially where it's one where it's building almost immediately off of where you leave the audience with chapter two, and it's almost like it's been one long story told, how much do you worry about educating an audience member who might actually be walking into this franchise for the first time because they've heard what it's all about and want to sort of test it out? Um, That's a good question. Um... You, you know, the biggest problem for us was going one to two. We, we didn't, I mean, we were, we were very shocked that we were asked to do number two after the, the first film came out. I think Dan and I were already looking for other jobs. Um, <laughs> no kidding. Really? Why? Uh, you know, I mean, if I, if I pitched to you guys and we, we did pitch this across town, uh, Keanu Reeves, former assassin, loses wife by natural causes, kills 80 people because of puppy death. <laughs> um, how do you think that's going to work out? It's almost like the Breaking Bad pitch. I mean, things like that, like it's wild to pitch something like that. It's wild. Like, in retrospect, you're like, yeah, sounds cool. But, uh, <laughs> you know, if you hadn't seen the first two generations, you'd be like, I don't know about that one. That could be hilarious. Right. Um, so anyways, when you come back, you're like, OK, great. We had never planned to go beyond number one. So you're like, oh, oh, what do we do? Um, do you just do it again and kill another puppy? No, that's not really an option. I think you only get one puppy a career. So, that, <laughs> uh, and that's if you count Dave and I as a pair and we split up half a puppy each, that's like all you get. <laughs> <laughs> so like, okay, well we decided, well, there's all these other thread ideas that we had that we didn't get to put into number one because we only had so much time. So like, well, okay, let's build this out. Where does this go? Let's more hotel, more stuff, the small, yeah, the stuff. Okay. Let's, and we kind of expanded it like that. And we thought, okay, that's good. But then again, you're like, right, okay, well, if, you, if we do this in terms of chapters like we want to do, like the, the, the TV vibe where we pick up exactly where we end off, there's a two-year gap between release time and release time. Mm. So, you know, think what you guys do in between two years. How many films do you see in two years? Yeah, right, exactly. You have to yeah. maintain the momentum with the audience. A shitload plus TV. So, like, while John Wick may be your life for those four hours that you've seen it and afterwards and chat with your buddies – you know, it, it's gone and forgotten for the next few years till we bring it back. So you have to remind audiences. Um, as in, or as I kind of stuck to with Dave in the first one, we, rather than do backstories and flashbacks and all these other uh, techniques of, of storytelling, we're like, look, um, we're going to do the Leone thing. Man with no, ta- no name. Mm. Nowhere in those Clint Eastwood Westerns did, were there flashbacks, were there anything other than you see the guy riding the desert and everything you learn about this guy happens in real time. Right. There's no, you know, super secret underground complex of the two NSA CIA guys going, you know, John Wick, he was in the military. He did that. Like, we're not going to do any of those. <laughs> Whatever he does, you know, Pale Rider, uh, by the way he spins an axe handle, by the way he does things, by some of the looks and the way he stares, you need, there's all you need to know about this guy happening there. And that's what we do with Wick. So when we got into Wick 2, we're like, Okay, anything that you need to 
to know about what happened in number one. We're just going to show you. We're not going to tell you. You're going to pick up the way he looks at a dog, the way he draws a gun, the way Santino comes on and gives the exposition with a marker. You don't need to know what the impossible task was. You don't need to know. You just know that John made a commitment. That's all you need to know. So I guess what I'm trying to say is uh, I kind of decided early on that rather than recap and tell a full story, I wanted to tell a new story just letting you know if John two, John Wick 2 was a standalone you may not know who this guy is. You may not know what happened in the first movie, but you know he's made a he's made a promise. He's getting called on it. He's going to Welsh on his thing, and he's going to get fucked. Rules of the hotel. Winston tells him, "Don't do this." John does that. Gets fucked. Right. So even if you didn't see John Wick one, within ten minutes you'd be able to catch up. Same yeah. with John Wick three. If you see one and two, you're definitely going to get more out of it. It's going to be more fun. But we tried to start John Wick three with. Uh, for whatever reason, Keanu Reeves is running for his life. There's a ticking clock. People want to get him. So hopefully within the yeah. first 20 minutes, you, you're vested into this guy's story, not number two John Wick's story, not John Wick number one's story. And by the time you get done with the second act, you should realize, oh, this guy's done a lot of stuff. I'm starting to catch up. Something happened. Dog what? Car what? And rather than waste valuable storytelling time and going back and reiterating what most of the audience knows – Hopefully it inspires you to go watch one and two later and then fill in the gaps as you go. Uh, Chad, obviously you have an understanding of, of stunts that, that most other directors don't have because of your history in the business. I'm sort of cu- curious, does your knowledge of stunts, uh, how intricate they are and oftentimes how dangerous they are, does that make you more inclined or less inclined to use Keanu specifically rather than a stunt double in a scene? Um, I guess... Uh, I think the, the the relevant point to your question is, I, you know, as far as stunts go, yes, uh, I mean, uh, I would hope that the time and energy I put into trying to be the best stunt performer I could, the best stunt uh, choreographer I could, martial art choreographer and stunt corner, um, yes, that does come back in that area. As far as overall directing goes, um, it's just, it would be the equivalent of being a really great production designer trying to be a director, a really great cinematographer trying to be a really good VFX coordinator. You know, it's like you work as an assistant, you work as a PA, you work as a, you know, that, and all of a sudden become the exec or the CEO. Very, you know, I think learning from the trenches and seeing that is very important. I think the relevant point to John Wick and the choreography is um, I got to work with Keanu very early on. It's not like I, I was in stunts this whole time. And, and, and did that career. And then when John Wick came around, I had to find an actor. Mm. You know, I wonder who could do this. I think the, the pertinent thing there is I knew Keanu for so long, and I got to see him in a very rare slot that most, 99% of actors out there don't get to be in. I mean, you're looking at the guy that, I mean, a lot of action stars, like, you know, you, you, you do Point Break, you do Speed, you do some of the other, Johnny Mnemonic, you do some of these other things. Mm. How many people get to do something like The Matrix? You're talking about an anomaly in, in, in the cinematic world where they were training for a year with Yung Wu Ping to do something with visionary directors that wanted more out of it and to change not only the look of the product, but the method in which they got it. The Wachowski mm. spoke all the rules about how to get the way they prepped, the way they spent their money, the way they developed it. Um, they took a cue from Asian cinema and from film noir and brought that to modern day cinema. We sold that same thing. So when you ask me, uh, did I choose, uh, you know, Keanu was involved first. We got hired. But knowing what he could do, you know, I sat through three matrices with him. I know how tough the guy is. I know what he's capable of. Mm. And it far ex- I mean, Keanu's one of those rare individuals that his capabilities exceed his limitations. You know, his current limitations, he can exceed by just training harder. He's got passion, persistence, and commitment that very few of us have in any endeavor, let alone acting. 
So you yeah, know, I go to John Wick and I want to create something new. I have an advantage that, you know, it's easy to be, well, I'm going to do a John Wick movie. I'm going to do something like that. That's great. But you may be a better director than me, but I have Keanu Reeves. So that's like, mm. that, that's the big equalizer for me. So I think if I'm only a five as a director, I have a cast member that's a 10. Mm. So that makes me look a lot better than I thought. <laughs> uh, and that's, that's the advantage is I, I have somebody who I know can go more. I have somebody that will show up eight hours a day for rehearsals. I have somebody that will not take another job for six months and invest himself into this project. Wow. I have a cast member like Halle Berry that will devote six months of her life to, to, to being with the dogs and the guns and the martial arts that goes above and beyond what most cast members go. You always have to work down to your, your, your common denominator, which is cast. Um, all the great ideas in my head and all the great choreography theaters, and I have the best, one of the best stunt martial art teams on the planet. I have this amazing cinematographer and this amazing crew. That's all great, but what's, what's, what does it all come down to? The dude doing it, the, car- the guy. It, right. it, or, or, or the woman, the, the, the lead cast, all this great crew and all this great team and all these rehearsals go together. It comes down to, can this guy pull it off? Mm. So that's where all the energy goes. Rather than most people, they go, oh, I'll get the double, I'll get this. We're just like, okay, if you want to be in a John Wick movie, uh, sign this. You're working for six months. You're not going to take another job, and we fucking own you. It's <laughs> <laughs> so hard to find some cast members. And Keanu was not only into it, he was gung-ho about it and thrives on that environment. Um and I'm sure you guys will will appreciate that. Like I didn't, and this is a joke I give in a lot of interviews, but I swear to you, it's the truth. I didn't really hire Hallie. She hired me. Yeah. Like she she sought me out. I, I would never have thought that Hallie Berry would one be a fan, let alone even interested in working with me, especially after what she's achieved. And you know, um, Hallie is very proud. Of, I'm very proud of the fact that Hallie is over 50 years old. Looks amazing. Is in phenomenal shape. But uh, someone so accomplished both in life and acting to want to commit to this level of, and I'm not going to shit you, it's fucking suffering. It may Mm. sound cool, but it sucks. Mm. Six months of training sound attractive, but the diet, the time, the commitment, the soreness, the pain, the the, the regime gets very frustrating. And having a cast like that that comes through, that's what really I think you're asking. It's not my experience as a stunt coordinator. It's the people I've met and the experience I've had in, in my profession that I've brought forward. I think that that's a lot more relevant than just me knowing how to punch and kick, you know. You know, Chad. Speaking to uh, Halle Berry, and I'll get to my question, but uh, and we only know her from our interviews. But we did an entire press day with you and Halle when she was sick, and she still did the interviews. I mean, that was unbelievable to me. And that was that's that speaks to what you're talking about—the commitment she had to this film. Yeah, I mean, everybody's got to. I mean. it's not that people don't feel pain. It's not really how physically tough you are. It's what your commitment and your diligence level is. It's yeah. commit, passion, and 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 honestly, discipline. It's yeah. it's what you want to put in. Anybody can get a lot out if you put a lot in. And it's just, and again, you know, the Hollywood, the talk, the hype, the publicity, all that stuff. It it doesn't happen as often as it's promoted. You know, yeah. and I have a very. Um, I try to lead from the front. I try to show people through, you know, thank God, through Keanu's diligence, passion, and commitment, that this is what we're about. You know, I want the audience to know. Uh, it's a thank you. Thanks. You know, we want to take care of you. We want to give you something that you haven't seen. And, and thank you for going to see our movies. But, like, it's a two-way relationship. Yeah. You can only do that with having the cast that's going to put the same thing out. If you're a fan of Halle Bears and Keanu Reeves because of this movie, it's because they work so hard and they want you to be fans of them. They, they care. You know, and that's a different level of commitment. 
Well, Chad, you mentioned commitment. Uh, One of the things I've always praised you and David for is giving us action that did not have tons of cuts in it, long, continuous takes of action. Uh, A lot of things are happening in camera. If you watch the B-roll, I mean, clearly the blood shots can be added in digital, but a lot of the fighting you're seeing is happening. Uh, I know you've spoken about this before, but I really want to dive into, now that we have a longer form uh, with a podcast, about the dogs and the colors you use for the attacks. Um, And I found that, that whole story fascinating, but specifically, I know the crotch biting thing has been brought up to you a lot in interviews, but it is mind blowing. And as somebody who loves to know how movies are made, while I, after I left the theater for John Wick Chapter Three, I wanted to know immediately how you were getting those dogs to go to those places and bite down. So, can you talk about? Um, the use of color that you did, uh, how you trained them to do that. And I know that Halle Berry was also the trainer of her own dog. So I don't know if you can talk, if you can walk me through the co- the color stuff. It's pretty wild. Sure. No. Um, the, there's something cool about being the director known for testicle biting. Um, <laughs> so I, I'm trying to think. One of my favorite by dogs. By dogs. People <laughs> talk about is, is Bob Fosse. You know. Uh, <laughs> An incredible director and choreographer. I don't know if he was ever got bestowed such a great title as that. <laughs> yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> yeah, he's the guy that figured out how to do a safe testicle bite. Um, no, like uh, I guess uh, I'll start it all by saying um, it's an idea I wanted to do in the second week. I, I, I'm a dog person. I'm an animal person. I, I love what animals can do. I just don't think it's ever been. Again, it's like the gun thing. Uh, everybody knows guns run out of bullets, but no one shows it. All we did was show it. Um, everyone knows when you try to throw a knife, it doesn't stick ever. We just took that and showed it. <laughs> you know, we're not creative geniuses. We're just taking a little bit of reality and throwing it into the action design. So we're not skipping over what actually happens in choreography. <clears throat> Same thing with dogs. I mean, assassins have dogs. You know, that's where we got the idea from. Mm. Um, next, I would say that when you see an animal in a movie, the animal doesn't know it's a movie. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no such thing as a movie dog. It's just a dog doing his thing on a set. But the mm. dog doesn't know the difference between your living room and a movie set. There's no half speed with an animal. The animal goes. Like when you tell it, go get the frisbee, he doesn't go, well, let's walk one through. Like, you just go <laughs> let's rehearse. <laughs> the point being is when you see an animal do a dog attack or you see a dog do a dog attack in a film, that is a dog that is trying to injure a human being. That is like the dog in the background right there. Yeah. Uh, I see your puppy walk by. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, what is he? Uh, uh, this is Daenerys. She's a shepherd mix. I adopted her, so they don't, they don't super know what she is. Thank you. Um, but th- th- that's the gig. So, like, w- oh, look, a puppy. You guys are big dog people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that one's absolutely ferocious. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, so when a dog attacks, it's, it's actually trying to injure, injure a person. So now you have an animal that's gone to a psychological place of fight or flight survival mode of actually trying to, to hurt, kill, maim, whatever it is. And another individual wrapped up in protective gear that's trying not to be maimed or, or game. <laughs> um, that didn't seem like a very cool mix to try and get done in what we're trying to do. So we went to an animal trainer named Andrew Simpson, an incredible reputation in the business. I'd never met Andrew before and kind of pitched him on the idea that, look, I, I would like um, dogs to do – and I explained jujitsu and gun fu and all the stuff <laughs> that got his attention. He looked at me really funny and I like to do it without doing real attacks. I want the dogs to be trained to understand that this is playtime and I want fun. I want to be able to do it around all kinds of activity. And he's like, well, we'd have to own the animals. We'd have to train them from scratch. We'd have to encourage this kind of behavior. I mean, you guys with your dogs right now, when the dog gets too frisky and he starts chewing on something, what do you do? Do you encourage it or do you say, no, bad dog, sit down. 
Well, you, right, say, you say bad dogs. Well, take yeah. what you do to your yeah. domestic dogs and completely flip the training around. <laughs> I, I'm encouraging them to tear up your bed sheets. I'm encouraging them to bite your pills. I'm encouraging you or them to go jump up on you, not just jump on you, but to grab your wrist and flip you right. <laughs> at full speed. So, okay, that's not normal and that's not uh, financially viable for a trainer to do to an animal because after the show wraps, the animal's habits and what he's been trained to do is not conducive to the next job. Wow. I didn't you even know? think about that. So yeah. The wow. dogs to do John Wick, they can't just go sit because their natural instinct now is like somebody raising hand, they see a gun, they're gonna go. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. that's what wow, I'm trained wow. to do. So you have to have all that incorporated into the financials of it, what you're gonna do with the animals afterwards, how you train them, because you don't want the animals to hurt their teeth, to hurt their jaws. Oh wow. The stuntmen have to be exceptionally trained because like if they're gonna do these gigantic air out reactions, you don't want your stunt guys to injure the animals. You don't want to landing on the poor doggy or anything like this. So the skills have to be rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed. And the dog's just like you guys throw a stick to your dog. Mm. He will return it the first three times. Fourth time he'll look at you like, what are you doing, dude? I got it. So while stuntmen and, and Keanu will get up 20 times to do it, you have a limited number of takes with the animals. So you have to take all this into into mentality when you're going to go start the process. Right. You have to know what you're training the animals for. You can't just isolate, go in a room, and train an animal to attack one stunt guy. Who else is on set when you're doing that? Mm-hmm. All the background players. Yeah. All the other stunt people. Guess who's shooting the movie? you got these guys holding cameras. Guess who's closer to the dog than even the stuntmen? Cameramen. So who's yeah. got to come to the person? Who does the dog have to know the most? Camera guys. Mm-hmm. Wow. I don't know if you guys most of the time, cameramen are only brought on maybe a week, maybe two weeks before the entire movie starts. Wow. i got to bring my team on three months before they start just wow. to stand there and the dogs get used to the smell. Oh, my gosh. Well, oh. this is going on in there. There's guys flying. We see those little things go bang, 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 bang. you got to train the dogs to be around bang, 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 bangs. Now you got to train the 10 stuntmen that will be repetitively used to know the different dogs. Five different dogs, 10 different stuntmen. Everybody's got to spend two hours a day with the different dogs just so they know who to attack. You don't see any leash or anything like that. So when the dog's released, if they're going after you, but you look a little shaky, animals by nature are going to go after the weak link. Oh. So if any one of your stuntmen feels a little nervous about it or looks like he's running away, guess who the dog is going to go for? Wow. Oh, my gosh. Now, the entire unit, everybody in front of that camera around that dog has been got to be spending time with it. So it's just – even though the stunts may not look that gigantic, the time committed just to get the dog to run A to B and tackle the right stunt guy with 30 other guys fighting around it takes that kind of time. Now, what's the dog biting? Okay, he can't actually bite real testicles. So, okay, what are you going to do here? So now we got to figure out what the dog's actually going to bite. What's been digitally removed from the stuff are these, uh, they look like uh, giant uh, long pillows. Uh, they're painted almost green screen green, like little chewy toys, but they're big and they're Velcroed on to the stuntman's uh, clothing outside of the wardrobe. So now this particular color green is what the dog's been trained to attack. So when he sees green screen green, and we see they see like the uh, the pillow shaped or the long hot dog shaped pad put on the, the guy's chest, the dog starts going apeshit. Comes out <laughs> of his cage, stunt guy's holding the thing, reveals the green pad on his chest. The dog focuses going, oh fuck yeah. And they start going, ah, you got two trainers holding the doggy back. He's like, he wants to play. He's going to go. He's going to go. Ready? Roll cameras. Ready? And boom, release. Dog fucking rah, boom, gets the green thing. Won't stop. That's what you see. In Jeez. Wow. Now, again, the dogs are all fired up. That's their toy. That's your chew toy. You ever try to get a chew toy away from a dog? Yeah. It's not easy. Okay. It doesn't change in a movie set. So now 
we couldn't get the dogs to let go of the chew toy. That's why you see them tugging so long on the guys. Oh yeah, my yeah. God. They're like Belgian Malawans are, they're task orientated. So once they get it, there is no way in hell they're going to let go of that thing. No matter what you say to them, like that's, that is their life. So we developed these quick releases. So what you don't see is the guys in their sleeves have this quick little loop. And it's just like a parachute quick release. So when we yell cut, they just reach over, pull the tag, and it's a quick release on the strap. The strap comes off, and the doggy still has his shoe toy. Oh, my God. Now, the dog's not a cast member. You can't go, okay, Bob, thanks for that. Take a seat. We'll get going in a minute. The dog is at 10 right now. He's at his, ah! So now, we yell cut, pull the release. The dog's got his toy. He's shaking all oh, this. is great. Go, okay, good boy, good boy, good boy. We got to take the dog to the doggy condo, a quiet little room offside of the set, where the dog just chew, 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 chew. And about five minutes later, he goes, all right, I'm good. <laughs> like, it's wow. So now between every take, there's a five minute of doggy chill time to get him back in the zone and focus back on. So he's not just, you can't just reset and go with the dog because yeah, he's all ants. You got to cool him back down. Okay. Okay. You good? We good? We good? Well, let's walk the dog back on. Okay. Everybody, oh, and you can do it again. No one realizes how much, what you just said, all I knew is the color thing. I don't think anybody, anybody listening to this podcast needs to understand what he just said about the work that went into just a scene where a dog bites somebody. That's, I didn't even think about the camera guys or I didn't even think about that. Again, when you start, that's when we say action design at East Center or something like that, like, look, everybody comes up with good ideas. You can have writers write great car chases or funky lines or something like that. Uh, we try to devise things that are unique and original and fun and exciting and, you know, stunt wise, you know, somewhat epic and, you know, cinematic, but at the same time, there is reality. Uh, physics don't change in a movie. Logistics don't change in a film. Uh, financials don't change. Like it's up to us to not only conceive the idea, but to execute it. Right. And in order to do that, methodology is where we use all the time. It's like, you have to reverse engineer things out and go, okay, why does everybody else suck at this? What's the pattern? Let's reverse out so we don't suck. <laughs> Figure it out. And, you know, it's very simple. Like, okay, why do our fight scenes look better? Like, oh, we just figured out why everybody else is sucking. Go, like, why did we suck in the beginning? It's like, it's, it's time commitment. It's people. It's where you put your energy. Coming up with cool moves is not the answer. Training your cast to perform is the answer. Training your cameraman to capture it is the answer. Getting your cinematographer to give a shit and show up three months out so he knows where to put the lights. You know, a lot of times they shoot super tight because they don't have a choice. The cinematographer didn't see the rehearsal till the day of. The director wants to go, I want to shoot really wide and see it all. He's like, well, yeah, fuck off. Would you, you should have told me that three months ago because I got <laughs> fucking lights. Right. So what, you want Brad Pitt to look like shit just so you can do a kung fu kick? The cinematographer's oh, okay. like, fuck off. Get a clue. And the director's like, well, I didn't know. Well, maybe you should have researched. Like, it's simple human error 90% of the time because you don't know what it takes to get something good. So it's easy to miss. No one sets out. No director gets a job with action and goes, you know what? I can't wait to do this fucking superhero movie. I, I can't. I'm going to make it suck. It's going to be great. I can't wait to do shitty action. Nobody wants to do shitty work. They just don't know how to get good work. And you, you know, we we didn't know. We had to figure it out. You know. Well, well you know, I, I mean, from that point of view, and you, I have to switch over to the Matrix because it's been 20 years. But it's a movie that we're still pointing to for the ground that it broke. Why? Why? From what you've seen, what operating on that movie and everything that you've done over the course of your career that brought you to John Wick Three right now, what is it about that film that still holds the test of time? You know, one word: Wachowskis. I, I can't. There's been no experience in my professional life that equals what what we went through, creatively, logistically, efficiently, financially. Um, you know, personally, on a show working for two legitimate 
legitimate creative geniuses. I mean, I, I, people use that word a lot in our industry. I, you know, that's the only time I've actually experienced that level of creativity and that le- that level of mindset of, uh, neither, neither one was a martial art expert. They just decided this is what we're going to do. We have a love of this. So let's just go right to the top. We'll find Yung King and, uh, okay, how do you do this? And they spent, you know, a year figuring out and they discovered exactly what I just told you guys. This is how you do it. They went to the top and two directors. I mean, if you watch Spielberg, you watch Nolan, you watch the Wachowskis, uh, Zack Snyder, some of his stuff. Uh, they're directors that believe directing includes action. Unfortunately, the majority today, directing is uh, talky, 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 bring in action director and he'll do all your work for you. Right. Or a studio that's already storyboarded it out for you. Don't worry, we'll figure it out. We'll do it digitally. Like, uh, director means you got to direct the the whole movie. You know, when they hand you this, the reins, that's, you don't let go halfway through and go, ah, fuck it, you take it. Right. You know, that, and I, and I don't mean this in a, in a, in an aggressive or confrontational way to, to newer directors or anything like that, but like, you know, honestly, do your fucking homework. If you, if you read that script, there's an action sequence in it. Well, who the fuck do you think is going to do it? If that scares you, if that's not your interest, just don't take the fucking job. Right, right, right. If it's got a car chase in it and you don't go out and watch everything from French Connection to Bullet to Bad Boys 2 to a Michael Bay movie to – like you tell me you're going to go research wardrobe for three months and you're going to block out a talkie scene but you're not going to give two, two ounces of thought to a fight scene? If you literally are directing a film that's got a martial arts sequence in it and then you don't worry about that till you know the fight coordinator comes in and you didn't hire the fight coordinator – like fight coordinators are not – there might be the guy. He only his only background is in karate. His only background is a kickback. He only grandpa like that may not be what you want. This guy may have zero experience in what you want. And if you didn't do the research to find out who you're hiring, like what? And if you never watched it, like I don't know, what's the difference between karate and kung fu? If you're actually asking those questions as you're hiring, like you haven't done your fucking homework, right? Like your right. head. And if you don't know, research and get an opinion. Go talk to people. Find it. It's no different than researching what's the new technology. I know some some people that want to direct are very into the technical side, but suck with people. Well, I got news for you. Who the fuck do you think's acting? <laughs> fucking people. So if you can't right. communicate to people, you got to work on your people skills. Right. Like you know, we're not painters. We can't go brush the camera. We're not singers. I can't just sing. I, I have anywhere between a dozen and four or five hundred people between me and my vision. So if I can't communicate it to the crew, to the cast, to the post guys, to the VFX guys, how, how do you think that goes to shit? And that's why, because you can't, can't get it done. So, you know, when you deal with the Matrix, the, the Wachowskis very early on decided, mm, fuck it, we're control freaks. We're just going to learn everything about everybody else. They can disassemble a camera. They can know everything. They can do digital and immediate. They know how to work color boards. They know everything about they can about VFX. They started their own VFX company. They would literally in between takes watch the fashion channel to see what the new fashions were and how to mold that into the next thing. They knew everybody's job is good. I mean, how many directors do you think I've worked with that, that could call out martial art terms from three different languages, three different countries, three different you know disciplines? Okay, wow. no one, but they could do it from like five. So by the time I was even involved, they knew every Yung Wu Ping movie, they knew every Jet Li movie, Jackie Chan movie, and not only that, they could quote sequences. So why do you think that movie's so good? Ah. Right. And you, I'm sure you see it when it's not done properly. I'm sure you're sitting there watching. And I'm sure you guys do too. I mean, what, what, I mean, don't get me wrong. There, there are like I love the original Highlander. I think some of the action queer in there is just god awful, but the vibe, <laughs> the tone, make it fun and nostalgic. You know, there's always excuses like that. I mean, I don't think every movie's success depends on how bitchin' the action is, but it definitely helps. 
If we got to go, I know you have a super busy time, Andy. This is a busy week for you and your movie's coming out, obviously. So we really appreciate you taking the time to geek out with us about the movie and uh, continued success, obviously, on the franchise and everything else you you continue to do. Thanks so much, man. Thank you, guys. See ya. All right, so John Wick Chapter 3 is going to try to be the film that knocks Avengers Endgame out of the number one slot at the box office. And maybe by this point, enough people uh, are looking for something fresh and new. You guys think it, you think John Wick will be number one at the box office? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I do too. I do too. Wait, are, so because that'll be number one, are we in a world where Endgame might not pass Avatar? It's at 2.5 right now. I think Disney keeps that movie in theaters until it's until it happens. Or they re-release it with extra footage. I saw a stat uh, today that day to day it's now lower than uh, Infinity War. Wow, so it's slowing down faster. Yeah, wow. but it was front loaded. Now, granted, it, it yeah. I mean, it was it did so well at the beginning that it it's you know it, by by no means am I trying to knock its box office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, no, no, but that, where, that's interesting. But, yeah, but where it's at. And the number of days it's been out is now lower than both uh, Infinity War and Black Panther. And to, but to clarify one thing, like Titanic, by the way, was number is, was number two before Avengers Endgame passed it. Titanic's number two status consisted of original release, 3D re-release, and 20th anniversary re- uh, release. So all Disney really has to do, and I'm sure they already have this in their back pocket, is re-release the film at some point this year with like an additional 20 minutes of footage or whatever they would do. And you would, you would, yeah, knock but it that's, out. that's, you're going to have like, that's if they get within 30 million, like that's not going to make you another hundred million. Uh, I think it could, if they released, if they re-release that movie. No, it, with, it, it, like maybe, I mean, I, I, whenever I think of like a re-release that makes a lot of money, I think of star, uh, star Wars special edition coming out 20 years later. I mean, I, like, like really? in, uh, Endgame coming out six months later with 20 minutes of footage is not going to make you another $100 million. All right, so we're three weeks in. We're at $2.5 billion. It has to get to 2.78. Does it make it? I still say yes. I think I so, mean, too. I mean, I'm just, I'm just going to double down and say no just because I'm the one guy that's saying no. But I think that Disney knows that they have to have a trick up their sleeve to help push it over somehow. I don't know what the trick is. <laughs> You're right. Like, re-releasing it with additional footage or whatever their gimmick might be. It's got to be some, but, but even if even if Disney just laid out the most honest marketing campaign and just said like help us beat Avatar, <laughs> everybody come but back. Do they really want to now tick off the director that's under their umbrella? Uh, yes, Jake. I think that they do. I think they want. do. I, I think they want this really bad. I think they want this really bad. And I do think. Listen, we're only three weeks in. Avatar was in theaters for a long three time. Weeks. Maybe. Yeah, and we were three weeks in. It's at two point five billion. I mean, all it has to make is another two hundred seventy million over the next. I mean, I know that's. I know it sounds like a lot. Not a lot of money. I mean, it sounds like a lot of money, but in regard the the grand scheme of things, it's not a lot. Yes, worldwide. I mean, are there any? I don't. I don't know. We probably don't know this off the top of our head, but are there any other major territories it just hasn't opened up in yet? No, but it it did. It did hit China initially. Obviously, China was the second biggest market or maybe was it bigger than us i can't remember um but the global on that movie is nuts i'm like telling that, you i would yeah. legitimately go back to theaters to st- i would pay out of my own pocket to see it if the campaign was please help us make endgame the number one <laughs> the number one movie of all time honestly i i just i want it to happen yes. i really do i'm just and i think jake as much as i know he didn't love endgame and he's already said this in the show before 
I think I'd rather live in a world where Endgame is number one and not Avatar. I mean, I just don't want Avatar at number one anymore. It just it it, it makes me so mad. It's not a good movie at all. Do you it's know like, what? It's, the, do you know what the you, you jokers are going to be eating your words when Aladdin comes out and become the highest oh, grossing film of all time? But do you know Can what the we discussed that Aladdin clip? By the way, I know it's not in our show notes, but gosh, do you know what the push might legitimately be? Because this is the fear that I have. Like the 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 thing that's compelling me to go back and see Endgame one more time is just. You, this is your last chance to watch it on the big screen, right? Like, I, I don't want to wait for Blu-ray now because I want to. I want to see it big one more time while I still would they would they play their cards, show a spoiler, and essentially say you'll ne- like essentially something along the lines of like you'll never see Iron Man ever again on the big screen. Like this is this is it. If you want to see Robert Downey Jr. as Iron Man, this is your last. Show. Let me ask you a question: If they if they re-release the film without the I Am Iron Man line to see what the original cut of the movie was, would you go? No, I want the I Am Iron no. Man line. No, 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 but you you wouldn't see the original cut before the reshoots. No. Just you'd be curious what it, what it felt like. Or Not enough to That's stop more my day and pay $12 okay. to go see it. Would right. you watch it instead of Aladdin? Yes. Yeah. Well, yes. by the way, I, I'm starting to feel bad for Aladdin. <laughs> like, I, I think it, I think it's about to bomb. I think it's I going to bomb. I feel bad, and like, and, and Jake and I were in New York yesterday, and they released that clip uh, of it was what I, I can't remember the song. We it was it was um, the Friend, Prince Ali Prince when Ali. he's on his way when he's on his way to the palace, and we Kevin and I were in the middle of a photo shoot. And we stopped the photo shoot to make everyone watch that clip because it was that bad. I couldn't believe that what I was seeing was a real motion picture. Guys, I warned you, that clip is better than the Never Had a Friend Like Me bit from The Cave, which is what they showed at CinemaCon. Is Aladdin going to bomb? I I think, I I don't think it's going to bomb. People might go see it, but it's going to be bad. I mean, every indicator so far makes it look Makes it look really bad. I'm scared for it. I feel bad. I, I love Guy Ritchie. I, I love Guy Ritchie bad. too. Well, and we're going to be talking about Guy Ritchie in, in a little bit, and you'll see why. Because we're moving on to our blend game. And the blend game we announced weeks ago is hashtag Sophia Coppola blend, where we're going to celebrate the films of Sophia, Sophia Coppola. Excuse me. And uh, we're picking our favorites, and I get to go first. And I don't know. I'm going to... I don't know why I automatically associate her with like period pieces or none of us can read that. I don't know what it says. I know. I, I was, I, I'm sorry. This is going to be a little inside baseball, but I, I didn't realize we, uh, Sean and, and Jake and I are, uh, we have live show notes in front of us during the show that it updates live in front of me as Gabe types notes in. That's oh, yeah. really cool. <laughs> sorry. I, I, I didn't realize, I, I didn't realize that you, it did that on my phone. I, I thought it would do it on my computer, but not on my phone. Like I'm getting Gabe's messages in red. It's kind of cool. This is episode so. 68. I know. No, <laughs> we, 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 we actually had a really a cool meeting recently to talk about how we can like do the show and be more involved and not step on each other's toes and notes. And so I'm Jake and I are taking it very seriously and looking at our show notes every week now. <laughs> and on, on a, on, we're being serious. And I did not realize until now that Gabe could type live in that document. So that's cool. Sorry. All right. My pick. And for this Sof- is the last show Gabe ever produces. <laughs> my hey, no, this pick is cool. for Sophia Coppola blend is the bling ring. I love bling ring. It is my favorite film by her um, because I think that she was the right voice to tell that story and get this 
uh, bizarro story about the YouTube generation. And maybe it's because I have kids who are following these YouTubers and people who are trying to make this overnight celebrity um, in LA, people who are on the fringe um, and figuring out ways to live other people's lifestyles. Um, I was fascinated by the the story of the people in the bling ring who were breaking into uh, quote unquote famous people like Paris Hilton and Nicole Richie uh, and trying to live off the fumes of their celebrity. And I also thought what Sophia brought in terms of analysis uh, of that story, based on everything that she's basically lived through and seen, um, she was the perfect voice to sort of tell that modern, this is where we're at in the social media YouTube generation. And I also thought that she showed everybody else that Emma Watson has um, a lot more depth uh, and sides that she's going to show as a performer. Whereas coming off of the Harry Potter franchise, everyone was like, oh, what's Hermione going to do? in this YouTube movie. And then she ended up giving a fantastic performance. And, and again, like I said, sort of showing off a different portrayal. I, I, cause for whatever reason, and she, it's not that she's done a million of these films, but I always sort of associate Sofia Coppola with like these, you know, glitzy sort of period ones like Marie Antoinette, yet Marie Antoinette's the only one that she's done. That's been in that sort of uh, mind frame. So I don't know why. Didn't I Didn't she do uh beguiled as well? Beguiled was a different time period though, but yeah, but different time period, but still a period piece. piece. But yeah. more people go to like lost in translation, which was a, a contemporary story. So, um, but, but for me, the contemporary stories, as much as I liked lost in translation, I really dug the bling ring. I love what she was doing in that. So if I was to pick a favorite, that's, that's my choice. I, th- I think that, uh, it showed an unexpected side of not just her storytelling, but then she also brought out the best in the cast and showed different sides of them too. I like that choice. If, if, my, if, my, if my wife was on this show right now, that would be her choice. And I, I, I love the bling ring. And I think, do you remember that? I can't remember whose house it is in the bling ring, but it's all one shot. Is it Paris Hilton's house where the, it's like a wide shot? The entire thing is done in one take. And, and Sofia Coppola, by the way, uh, props, to, uh, props to her because she still shoots on film which makes me really happy because a lot of filmmakers are converting to digital. We all know that. But Sofia Coppola has kind of kept that film alive. And I remember interviewing her for The Beguiled and having a great conversation because that was a film that was shot with a very unique aspect ratio. And it was shot on 35 and it looked beautiful. Um, Which, by the way, we didn't discuss this last week. Pikachu was shot on film, which I find mind-blowing to me that Rob Letterman shot Pikachu. I had a great conversation with him about it because if you watch Pikachu again... Look at Pikachu's face. Like they added grain to a digital character. That whole thing was shot like like film noir Maltese Falcon style. Like it's kind of crazy that they did it. That I didn't like Pikachu, but I just found it interesting that, that out of all movies to be shot on 35 millimeter film. So Roger Deakins shoots Sicario digitally and Skyfall digitally, but they shot Pikachu on 35 mil. Hey, listen, what Rob Letterman wants, Rob Letterman, Rob Letterman gets. gets. Yes, yeah. he gets it. Jake, I've been told you get to go next. Um, mine, I think, is more of an obvious pick, and a lot of it comes from I am, uh, admittedly, admittedly, not a massive Sofia Coppola fan. Um, I, I, I think she's talented, and, and and there have been films of hers that I've I've respected. Um, but this was one when you announced, quite frankly, I was a little bit like, ah, oh, okay. Um, so I'm going with Lost in Translation, and the reason I have always been attracted to that movie is because it tells us a very familiar story but through a lens that makes it unfamiliar. It, t- it tells a story of loneliness and, and not really um, feeling like you have a, a place in the world and kind of feeling like you are sort of separated from, from everyone else around you. 
but it's told through the perspective of a celebrity. And celebrities are groups of people that we forget have the capacity to feel things like that. You know, we think of a celebrity and we think of the glitz and the glamour and the red carpets and constantly surrounded by people. And you've got all these friends and your life is amazing. And so to tell the story of loneliness through the viewpoint of someone who, as a society, we naturally assume could never be lonely. How, how would a celebrity ever be lonely? I thought was really, really fascinating. I thought it was really well done. Uh, Bill Murray is absolutely incredible. Um, the, the chemistry he has with Scarlett Johansson on screen um, it's just, it's really, it's really sweet. Um, I, I, so, so I did actually really enjoy that movie and it's really, it's an interesting character study and an interesting study of what it means to be alone when you're constantly surrounded by people. It's two of her films that comment on celebrity. Uh, I didn't yeah. realize what a undercurrent, you know, of her storytelling that that yeah. really is. Wasn't Scarlett Johansson yeah. like 18 or 19 when she made that movie? Yeah. 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 That's a movie. Kevin, is that your pick also? That's my pick as well. And I think the lonely element of it is interesting to me. It's also why I was a fan of Judd Apatow's Funny People. Um, because I remember um, watching Sandler's character walk through that building in the beginning of the film and like everyone stopping him for photos. And you, yeah, and and, and this is going to be a completely morbid uh, transition, but I, you think about actors or musicians or people who have taken their own lives. Um, and uh, you think about Robin Williams, you think about, uh, and you go, how? Re- why? I mean, like, like, in the sense of you never expect, like, Jim Carrey to be depressed, um, but he deals with mental health issues all the time. And these are some of the funniest people on the planet. I remember when Robin Williams passed away, I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't think anyone really knew who he was. Like, I mean, like, we all knew and loved Robin Williams as the talented actor. We all knew and loved him as the personality we saw on screen and in interviews, but what was his life like out of that world? Um, and then obviously not nowhere near as extreme, but jumping back into Jake's point about loneliness, um, that's kind of where I went in my mind just now when Jake was explaining what Lost Translation was. Um, that's my pick uh, primarily because I think it's the best movie she's ever made uh, in regards to the writing and directing. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if she wrote it. For, uh, the, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on that, directing-wise. But... The reason why I love Lost in Translation is because I fit it into a category of films like Pulp Fiction and Inception where you have an ending that is still being discussed years, years later. Um, And what what I mean by that is the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, we're never going to know what was in it. We're never going to know the ending of Inception, whether or not the, the, the totem falls. We're never probably going to know what Scarlett Johansson, I'm sorry, is, is Bill Murray whispers to Scarlett, no, it's well, the other way around, right? I can't remember, no, who whispers to who? I can't remember off the top of my mind now. Unless she whispered to him. Right, whispers to him, right. Oh. So, uh, are you sure it's, because I remember. I, no, uh, I'm not sure. I, I don't can't know remember for now. sure. I'm yeah. blanking, but I'll tell you why I bring that up. When I was on the carpet for a Bill Murray event in D.C. at the Kennedy Center, uh, he was, it was right before the Cubs we're about to win the World Series. And I and I and he comes up and I go, Mr. Murray, you know, as a film fan, I'm curious, since you love the Cubs so much and I love your movies so much, do you think that if the Cubs win the World Series, you will reveal what was said at the end of Lost in Translation? And he, and he goes, he goes, no one's gonna care. I'm like, I would care. I wanna know that answer. And but he, like in his mind though, that is something that is nowhere like it's not as big of a deal to him as it is to us. You know what I mean? Like we I would love to know what was whispered uh, in that moment. And I remember asking Sofia Coppola about it at the Beguiled Junket. Um, not, I didn't ask her what was said. I asked if she knew what was said. Uh, because if you think about it, the camera's pretty far away, and it's a whisper. 
I mean, I don't know that anyone picked up that audio and or what was being said there. I, I, can't, I can't remember what Sophia said. I, don't, I think she said she knows what was said, but it, but it was multiple things. They, they did multiple takes of that sequence, and I don't know which one made it into the film, but it's it's kind of cool. As much as I want to know, I don't want to know. Like I almost feel like I don't want to know what's in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. Let me ask you guys a question. If you guys were sending an article today in an email that said Quentin Tarantino has revealed what's in the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, would you open it? Oh, yeah, 100%. I would read that. I'd open it, but I'd still rather, I think I kind of, I'd rather not know. I want to know. You, would you want to know if the total it, it goes back to the whole J.J. Abrams uh, TED Talk where he talked about something his grandfather taught him and it represents all of all of what I think is best about J.J. Abrams, which is um, a closed box is infinitely more interesting than an open box. Um, you know, what, you know, you think you see a box. I actually have, I bought it for charity, a wooden box with a lock on it and it has a burned question mark. I bought it for, uh, it was like a hundred dollars. Um, it went to JJ Abrams charity and there's a bunch of stuff inside. And if you can figure out the combination, if you can figure it's got all these symbols on it, if you can figure it out, you can open the lock and get it. I, it's, I, I love not knowing what's inside this box. no. No, that gives me such anxiety now. No. I need to know what's in that box. I, I'm gonna let me, let me I go get out it's, you. I think if it's done right, you don't need to know. Um, I think that that you know what's special about that moment in Lost in Translation? Only those two people know what was said. Sure. Yeah. And that's kind of a and and I also feel like we're we're kind of just onlookers looking at that story, going, "What did they say?" And I, Jake, uh, to what I just said while you walked ready to get your box was. There's something special about knowing that those two characters are the only people who know what was said in that moment. It's kind of interesting. Like, I, I find it fascinating. Um, and to this day, no one's revealed it. Neither, neither is Bill Murray, neither is Scott Johansson. Well, Tracy Stringfellow uh, and many others agreed with you guys and said Lost in Translation. Um, two other films of hers that got mentioned by audience picks, Kimberly Sue said Somewhere. And Gilbert Taylor went with Marie Antoinette. Um, and again, she didn't have a huge filmography, but I think her movies stay in the conversation um, quite often because they bring up topics like you're saying, like these these lingering questions that don't get unanswered and have people uh, having a lot of fun sort of figuring out what's going on with it next. Now for next week, look, we've been banging on Aladdin a little bit, but we all really like the films of Guy Ritchie. And so we're going to play on Twitter uh, using the hashtag Ritchie Blend. We will discuss um, our favorite films of Guy Ritchie. And who knows? Maybe by the time we get around to discussing his favorite films, we will have seen Aladdin. Yeah. I want to say that because we're we're all right now we're just kind of basing our opinions on what we've seen and that's that's normal it's normal to have a reaction to publicity things that are put out um, this movie could be a masterpiece and I, and I don't I don't want it to be bad I do, I do not want Aladdin to be bad Aladdin's my fa- it's my favorite Disney animated film outside of Pixar so I am all in on seeing it. I'm just worried. It I mean, at the very least, me. Jasmine's going to be in it, right, Kevin? So you. Oh man. So you're in to a certain extent. Uh, that was one of my favorite moments ever. Was was sitting down, Robin Williams, and telling, admitting to him that I had a crush on Jasmine, and then him going, "It's cool, man. I had a crush on Jessica Rabbit growing up." I was like, "All right, if Robin Williams says that, then I'm okay." I mean, it was just, it was, it was just like kind of a cool little clarification to get from him. Well, so. if you guys don't want to play along yeah. on Twitter, you can also email us your pick for hashtag RichieBlend at RealBlend at CinemaBlend.com. Of course, that's where you guys can also leave us reviews if you want to that we will re- read at the top of the next episode. Our next episode is going to be recorded live in London where all three of us are going to be hanging out and trying to put together a very special episode. Um, 
where I would assume it's going to be longer. Every time we all get together and do an episode together, it's, it ends up being longer than your traditional episode. We'll be able to tell you guys about uh, Dark Phoenix and Rocketman and share some really interesting junket stories. So look for that the next time we are all together. Sean. Kevin. Before we go, uh, I was I was doing some research recently, uh, especially for our Chad Stelhesky interview that we have coming up, and I, I stumbled across an interview with Keanu Reeves about his favorite Jack Black movie. Have you heard about this? I was just curious. Gabe, did you hear about this? Or Jake, did you guys read about this? This is actually a really fascinating answer. I was very happy to hear this. I have not heard about Keanu Reeves' favorite Jack Black movie. Yeah, well, it's a little film, great movie, called Tenacious D, John Wick of Destiny. It's pretty good, Kevin. The, the pick of destiny. Come on. Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy with that one. Yeah, yeah. Follow Kevin at <laughs> Kevin McCarthy TV. I'm hey, it's all I got today. O'Connell. We are at Real Blend, uh, and we will be back next week. <laughs> That's a Live from London. So until then, from the birthplace of Christopher Nolan, who directed a film called Dunkirk. Yeah. We, we'll and one day we're going to get him on our show saying that. it has. If he screams Dunkirk with us, uh, uh, my, my life is ultimately, I'm good. Well, but until that happens. Dunkirk. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.